1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. I'm joined today by Senior Producer Connor Boyle. Hello. And Executive Producer Hannah Kay. Hello. Today, Friday the 24th of February, marks one year since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. On Intelligence Squared, throughout each phase of this war, we've been talking to historians, journalists, military security and defence experts to get a greater understanding of what's happening in the region. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to take a look back at some of our most interesting and informative episodes, some which capture a particular aspect of the conflict, and others which speak to a wider understanding of Russian President Vladimir Putin's motives.
2: The first conversation was actually recorded before the invasion during the mass of troops on the Ukrainian border, when it seemed uncertain which way things would go. Fiona Hill was someone who we were primarily actually interested in a year before to discuss her quite unusual journey from County Durham working class mining community to becoming a presidential advisor. Um, She had a huge amount of insight on Russia and Ukraine and she was in conversation with Times special correspondent Josh Glancy.
3: But I think there's something else you know, that may be going on as well. I mean, I think it probably hasn't escaped uh, everyone's notice that although he's been sort of seen all over the place on television screens and out and about a little bit, he's also been confined to base. He's obviously in rather splendid isolation, you know, in one of his money offices and datches. But, you know, kind of what kind of information is the guy getting? You know, what is his mindset like? I mean, we're all uh, pretty much confined in these little Zoom boxes that we've been in all the time. We've all got kind of stir crazy and cabin fever and, I certainly think that the, you know, the COVID pandemic has messed with everyone's minds here, right? You know, so what kind of information is Vladimir Putin getting? Is he um, you know, perhaps miscalculating in terms of what he thinks he can get here? He's put so many options on the table. Uh, so many maximalist demands on NATO, Ukraine, the United States. And we've got no sense of what the floor is to these demands. We're trying to kind of set that right now by, you know, probing and uh, various meetings. And he doesn't seem to have given himself much room to walk back. Unless, you know, if he kind of basically pulls back from saying he's going to um, send missiles to Cuba and Venezuela, he portrays that because of some compromise or concession uh, that the United States and others have made. And so I think we're actually in a rather... Difficult position right now. No one's very clear about his mindset. Maybe he, you know, himself, and I think that's going kind to of pretty good. But hasn't completely made up his mind of what he's going to do, and you know, he's trying to see how we react. But how we react may actually constrain, you know, some of his actions, or even encourage him, you know, to do things that he might not have intended to do before. Because at this point, there's also a lot of people saying this is just a bluff. This is just an elaborate, you know, kind of uh, exercise to get us to concede to things that, you know, he has, um, you know, no expectation otherwise that we're going to get. And he has no intention of actually invading Ukraine. There's plenty of people are saying this right now. And it's also very plausible. But as we react and, you know, that becomes that dynamic, you know, he actually um, has to show that it's not a bluff. And I think that's one of the reasons why Biden and others are actually speaking out and saying, look, this is not a guy that normally bluffs. We have to take this seriously. He's going to do something because, you know, Putin has to, you know, he can't, disappoint the fans. He's got all these people who expect him to do something. He says, if I threaten, I deliver. And there comes a point where he actually has to do something rather than you know, playing games and military exercises. And that's the dangerous uh, point that we're in right now.
4: Of course, when I get pandemic cabin fever, I order too much pad thai, but um, sure, Putin, you don't do this. Putin threatens to invade Ukraine. I guess that's the difference between me and Putin, or one of them.
1: Following the outbreak of the war, Western countries impose sanctions on Russia. To target individuals close to power and to cripple its economy, all in a bid to slow down the war. A year later, and the list of these sanctions continues to grow, while the world has experienced a spike in food and energy prices. In March 2022, on the Intelligence Web podcast, we staged a debate, sanctions won't stop Putin. Our host, journalist and academic Philippa Thomas, was joined by Guardian columnist Simon Jenkins, who was speaking for the motion. And speaking against the motion was Bill Browder, head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign.
5: So we're hearing from Bill Browder. Sanctions will stop Putin if applied properly. We're hearing from Simon Jenkins. He's yet to see a case where sanctions actually work. I'd like to look at different aspects of what's going on with Russia, Putin, the oligarchs, the people of Russia, as we look at what sanctions can or may be about to do. Can I focus you first on the oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs who have such power, such wealth? Um, Bill, can I come back to you to ask... Do you think they are actually being impacted by sanctions in a meaningful way?
6: There's no question that the oligarchs are being impacted by sanctions. For the oligarch who is subject to the sanctions, it pretty much ruins their life. The moment that you get put on the US sanctions list, or even the UK sanctions list for that matter, you can no longer have access to the bank accounts, you can no longer sell or buy a property or move um, capital from one place to another nobody can do a business deal with you. Heck, you can't even turn on your computer because your Microsoft license has been canceled. And so what it does is it, it effectively takes huge international business people and makes them financial pariahs at the stroke of a pen. And that's hugely, hugely disruptive, wealth destroying, and I would say morally destroy, you know, destroys their morale in a way that, that you can't even imagine. But the other thing about the sanctions program is that in addition to affecting the people who are actually sanctioned, it creates a, effectively a reign of terror on the others who haven't been sanctioned, who are all sitting there and wondering if they're going to be next. And it is a quite effective way of showing the oligarchs that basically any support of Putin is being punished and his way of showing Putin Putin that his own money is being frozen at the same time.
5: So meeting one reign of terror with another reign of terror is in effect fighting fire with fire. Simon, on the question of the oligarchs were coming onto Putin's wealth, but do you see evidence that this is having impact or maybe it should still be allowed to play out?
7: Well, I'm not aware that that, the oligarchs are sitting around the table with Putin at the moment discussing the the war in Ukraine. Uh, Most of them are in London and New York. Uh, I I want to see evidence that it works, not that they're suffering. I don't give a damn about suffering oligarchs. I don't know any, I know one or two actually, and they're not suffering that much as you rightly pointed out. But um, I mean, if they all sink in their yachts, I just don't care. Um, We're talking about Putin. What affects Putin's attitude to this war? And this war is clearly in his mind way beyond economics. It's a matter of, of, there's no existential threat to us. There's an existential threat to Russia, he thinks. As long as he thinks that, he will behave as if it is an existential threat. And that's the the menace. If we really think it behoves the West to go in there and stop him doing it, we should go in there and stop him doing it. I think it would be a catastrophe. But I really don't see the oligarchs having anything to do with the case at all.
5: There's a question here about the pressure points on Putin personally, what works? And through the oligarchs, can you effectively get to him? Bill?
6: So uh, when Putin um, came into power, he was um, really not all that powerful. He was president of the presidential administration, but not president of Russia, because the oligarchs at that time controlled Russia through informal means. They basically bought members of the parliament, bought government officials. And so Putin's big job was to um, basically reestablish control. And he did that by arresting the richest oligarch in Russia, a man named Mikhail Hordekovsky. And he put him on trial, and he allowed the other oligarchs to watch on TV as the richest man in Russia sat in a cage. And after the uh, conviction of Mikhail Hordekovsky, the richest man in Russia, all the other oligarchs came to him and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage? And he said 50%. And at that moment in time, Putin became the richest man in the world. And Putin also became the biggest oligarch in Russia. But he didn't ask them to transfer the money into his name, because if they had, then anyone could have blackmailed him. And they continued to hold the money that is his in their name. And so when you look at an oligarch who's on the Forbes list that says, and it says they're worth $20 billion, they're not. They're worth $10 billion, And the other 10 belongs to Vladimir Putin. And so if you want to hurt Vladimir Putin, which I think that it's sort of commonly acknowledged that we want to do, you have to go after his money. And if you want to go after his money, you have to go after the oligarchs. And that's what's being done. And I don't think that there's ever been a... a historical case like this in which you can prove it doesn't work it's clear and logical that if putin is doing terrible things and he's a terribly rich man and he holds that money with with people other than himself and you want to create a consequence for him doing terrible things then you should go after that money and to go after that money you go after the oligarchs
7: well if there's any case of a, an authoritarian leader who has been fined um, billions of dollars, of, of the trillions he may have, who has then changed his mind about his leadership of the country. They tell me one. It may well be, and I, I'm always careful about these things, we're now living through such unprecedented times in so many respects. This could be the case that disproves my law. But as far as I'm concerned, money is not the issue here. Any dictator can afford a war. He pays for it later on. He can afford a war because he's living from day to day. Putin has not shown to me or to anything I've read any sign of being influenced by these economic sanctions. Everybody around him may be influenced. It may well be enough people get together to go and kill him. But as far as I see, and this applies to to, to authoritarian regimes everywhere, they are not vulnerable to financial or economic pressure. They're vulnerable to power. And he, in the moment, has got no threat, threat to his power.
5: Simon, can I just follow up? Money is not the issue here. But for the millions of Russians who are suffering, it
7: very much is. All studies of sanctions show that they hurt the poorest most. Sanctions are a rich man's game and the poor suffer. It's just appalling what sanctions have done to dozen, at least a dozen countries around the world which have been had sanctions inflicted on them. To me, it's, it's an immoral sort of weapon. It's a bit like a bomb. You know it destroys lots of things, but you can't prove it works.
8: In March, we staged a live event in central London and brought together two of the world's most eminent political thinkers, Francis Fukuyama and John Gray, to discuss whether liberalism is obsolete. And in this clip, our host Helen Lewis and Fukuyama discuss the title of his most famous work, The End of History, The Collapse of the Soviet Union, and how this created the Russia that we know today. I
9: want to go back because, Frank, you have a you know, a very rare achievement, which is that all of this conversation is happening in the shadow of your work and your thinking. And The End of History is an often misquoted, misremembered book. Can you refresh us on what you were actually arguing? (laughs) Because it's The End of History with a capital H, right, Uh which is very uh important. But what was the central thesis of that book?
10: Yes, well, let's see if I can think of that (laughs) argument. Uh, I... Usually get asked it once or twice a day for the last thirty years, so that is the price of success. Of, I'm afraid. Yeah, have a lot of practice. Well, uh, first of all, I would I would explain what the end of history those words mean. So history is history with a capital H. Today we would call it something like modernization or development. Uh, that is to say, the slow evolution of human. Social organization over the millennia, as you go from hunter gatherer societies to tribal societies to, I don't know, feudalism to, you know, an industrial society, and then wherever we are today, uh, that's history. And then the end is not a stopping, it is the direction that that progress is uh, pointing us towards. And um, there was a, well, Karl Marx had a you know, he bought into the idea that there was history in this progressive sense. And he also talked about an end of history. For him, the end of history would be communism, because that was the highest form of human uh, organization that resolved all of the contradictions of prior uh, forms. And my observation back in 1989 was we weren't going to get there. We weren't going to get to this higher stage that we could get to liberal democracy connected to a market economy, but it wasn't clear that there was another stage in social evolution, higher than that, better than that, and that that's you know where we would uh, end up. Uh, I did not predict that everybody would end up being a peaceful you know democracy, but I said that there is this larger process you know call it modernization that is valuable. You know people don't want to live in poor chaotic, less developed countries. They wanna live in you know, Switzerland or Canada or you know, Britain uh, that uh, has a high level of wealth where you can, uh, or, uh, you can educate your children. You don't have to worry about your physical security the way you do in many uh, poor societies. And you know, that's really what the meaning of the end of history was.
9: Which then leads me on to the question of why didn't that happen to Russia after the end of the Cold War? Why didn't it become a liberal democracy?
10: Well, I do think that there are, uh, you know, cultural traditions that can get in the way. I mean, so many factors. Uh, One of them was uh, just bad policy. And I really do think that a lot of the, especially the American economic advisors that were uh, talking to uh, Russian policymakers after the Soviet Union fell apart, gave them bad advice. They made a much too rapid transition to a market economy. They didn't have the, and it was based on a really fundamental misunderstanding. They didn't understand you need a state in order to have a market economy, a functioning state, and the, mm-hmm. you know, the Soviet Union had just dismantled its state, and so that was part of it. I think that you know, just the shock of losing an empire that rapidly uh, was deeply traumatizing to a lot of people. It uh, shouldn't have been, because I, I, I believe there's a country in this neighborhood that lost an empire at some point in the not-too-distant past, and it didn't go into this big revanchist you know, effort to reconquer lost territories. But I do think that there is a tradition in Russian national identity that understood its own identity in terms of the domination of its region. and that. Simply just didn't go away. Um, And then, you know, I think uh, part of it is just the luck of particular leaders. And I think we've got a lunatic running this country right now who is just fixated on that, what he regards as a historical uh, injustice. But you could have imagined other outcomes. You know, Boris Yeltsin could have appointed somebody other than, you know, a KGB agent to be the next president of Russia, and we may have been on a very different path. As we
1: just heard, democracy in Russia has never taken hold since the abandonment of communism in 1991. To be a voice of political opposition in Russia has repeatedly come with fatal or near-fatal consequences. In May on the podcast, we were joined by Jana Nemtsova, daughter of murdered Russian politician Boris Nemtsov, and Ben Noble, Associate Professor of Russian Politics at University College London and co-author of Navalny, to discuss the increasingly dangerous and now disappearing game of voicing dissent in Russia. Hosting this discussion was Polina Ivanova, correspondent for the Financial Times covering Russia and Ukraine.
4: I think it's difficult to exaggerate the degree to which the space available for opposition in Russia has shrunk. You rightly pointed out that that space has been shrinking over the last few years, and especially since Navalny returned to Russia at the beginning of 2021. We've just seen an extraordinary acceleration of that shrinkage since Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February this year. So as well as looking at the political opposition, I think we can also think more broadly about critical voices in Russia, whether they be independent journalists or opposition politicians. And so it's difficult to escape the conclusion that the situation is very, very bleak, and people on the ground are either remaining quiet in order not to face the consequences of saying these critical things, or they've left the country, or they've already ended up in the law enforcement system in Russia as we've seen with some notable opposition figures, including Vladimir Karamuza, It's a bleak picture and one that isn't likely to improve in the near future.
11: When the
2: war broke out first, a lot of my opposition-minded friends in Russia or, or people that contacts in, in Russia who share a kind of liberal political view were sharing videos of Boris Nemtsov, actually. His speech in 2014, soon after the annexation of Crimea, was all over my Facebook feeds for a while, where Nemtsov was saying that this is an act that is shameful, is brazen, and speaking in front of a crowd of tens of thousands of people about Russia and Ukraine without Putin. I mean, anti-war slogans, mass protests, powerful speeches by, by important opposition leaders. I mean, Jeanne, can you
12: imagine a situation like that today in this moment? The short answer to your question is no. To elaborate on what you've just said, I should admit my father was among few ones who was against the annexation of Crimea, even among liberally minded politicians. So it was very high on his agenda. And uh, you've been talking about uh, this massive protest in Russia and Moscow. It happened in March 2014. It attracted more than 50,000 people, and they protested against the annexation of Crimea and the subsequent war in East Ukraine. So uh, my father was a political visionary, and he understood earlier that Putin means war and crisis. And of course, I'm not surprised that his videos are going viral right now. He's regarded in Russia and beyond Russia as a political prophet who read Putin very early and understood where he was leading our country. For now, I think uh, it's not appropriate to speak about Russian opposition as it doesn't exist. Opposition exists in a different environment, in a democratic society, in a country with a democratic system. We do not have any democratic system, any legal political competition. We should speak about dissenting voices. So there are a lot of dissenting voices in Russia, those who reach out to really big audiences, and among them are different people, politicians, activists, journalists. So lots of them fled Russia. Some of them still stay in Russia, but lots of them fled Russia. And lots of them are at a loss as what to do next. So the situation is very, very bad. And I think the major concern is about the state of the Russian
8: society. Now we're going to hear from some Ukrainian voices about the war in their country. This was an online event where our host, journalist and broadcaster, Philippa Thomas, spoke to three Ukrainians. The MP Kira Rudik, the geopolitical analyst and humanitarian Michael Botsurkiv, and Olha Polyukovich, a cultural historian and academic. We heard how they were experiencing the war from various towns and cities in Ukraine. And you can actually hear some of the air raid warnings going off while they were speaking.
5: Kira Rudik, Ukrainian MP, leader of the Holos, which is Voice Political Party. Kira, where are you joining us from?
13: And tell us about the flags we can see standing proud behind you. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm joining you from Kyiv and i'm proud to say that i have been here since the day one i didn't leave anywhere except for uh, one day in bucha and gostomel i remained with my constituency and i uh, will uh, be here for as long as i am needed uh, actually it's a funny thing about flags so we have behind me the the ukrainian aims right we have ukrainian flag we have my party flag holos or voice We have European Union flag, and we have NATO flags. Uh, It it all represents, like, why are we fighting and what we need to achieve. But the most important is these flags are covering my windows. And what you cannot see right now are actually the tapes on the windows. And uh, every window right now in any territory that can be hit by airstrike, are actually covered with uh, with tapes, because if there will be a hit behind me, then I can be easily killed by the glass fractures, and so this wouldn't happen. I also have flag as additional protection. And I can tell you quickly, right away, that uh, just an hour ago, I was with my friend, a journalist, uh, who was at the building, near the building that was recently hit by the Russian missile, and she only had uh, the, her windows taped uh, in only one of her rooms. And so because of the air strike and because of the shock wave, uh, the rest of the glass was everywhere and she actually hurt her legs and it's a terrible, terrible situation. But uh, this is our new reality. We are taping our glasses everywhere because we know that it could save our lives. Thank you. It is your new reality. It reminds us how vulnerable you all
5: are and the importance of the fact that you are speaking to us tonight from within Ukraine. And you'll not just be speaking to me, you'll be hearing uh, from audience members. I'll be able to bring questions to you. And so to explain to those who are joining us, tonight's event runs for about an hour. And for the first 40 minutes or so, I'll be talking to our guests, but I want to be taking your questions as well. And you can start asking them now. It's pretty easy. You just click on the ask question button that's at the bottom of your screen under the video screens. You type in your question. If you want us to say your name as well, if you want me to identify you, just put your name, type your name in the box as well, and then press send. And that's how your questions will come in. I'll remind you as well partway through and as we open this up in the last 20 minutes of the event. But let's come back to our guests now because what I want to ask you first, and Kira, I'll come back to you first,
13: to sum up for us how you have experienced this war. Um, You know, our previous president once told me that there is no Stanford in the world that would teach you how to be a president during a war time, how to be a member of parliament during a wartime, how to be a parent during a wartime. So we uh, are happy that we are alive. We are surprised that it's day 71, because I think nobody and even ourselves did not expect it to last for so long. We would have hoped for that quick victory and the world would have thought that we would lose quickly uh, we have uh, our lives changed tremendously uh, and we had been traumatized to the level that cannot be reversed when you're asking me of how are we doing the most painful thing that i can tell you is that you know we all are coming from the generation of 90s we all have lived through the revolutions through the poverty and we hoped that we will raise a generation of kids that wouldn't know all of that, that we would spoil them and they will build a new country uh, b- based on democracy and all the values that we, that we will uh, instill in them. And right now we fail those kids because now we have a generation of kids that know how to hide when there is an air raid siren. And we know who know and ask their parents, mommy, are we refugees who know to cover their ears and open their mouths when they, when they hear explosions, who know all the atrocities of war. So this is how we are. Olga, your war, your experience of war, what do you most
5: need us to understand from the outside about what you've been going through?
11: Uh, yeah, um, what I found out, so um, uh, I was uh, researching uh, Ukrainian literature and uh, as you may, as you know, um, many writers um, uh, underwent uh, World War II. And when I was reading their stories, their memoirs, uh, of course, uh, I could uh, think that it's war is awful thing, but um, I could not imagine how it really is uh, until um, the full scale uh, Russia-Ukraine war uh, started and uh during the first days of war, we've counted the days, so it's like uh seventh days of war, eight days uh twenty, and so on and now we uh stopped uh, uh doing that, and it looks like it uh, like Kira said uh it's our new normal uh I'm teaching online, and I also want to say underline that um uh, uh, my students uh, spent two years uh, online uh, during the pandemic uh, because of COVID-19, and, the, and now they are living through war. And, of course, it's it's very tough for them. But uh, when I see how my colleagues from Kharkiv uh, teaching uh, from uh, basements, from bomb shelters, uh, it gives me hope, uh, it gives me strength, and... Um, Uh, I I can feel uh, this uh, resistance, uh, and uh, it really gives us hope in these desperate uh, times. Um, What we can do is just to continue what we are doing. Michael,
5: your thoughts on being plunged into one existential crisis after the last one, as as Olha was saying, you know, what particularly would you like us to understand from your point of view? Sure.
14: <clears throat> well, I, I view this um, <clears throat> as part of the war that started in 2014. This is kind of an extension, but of course, a much more violent one and on a much, much wider scale. But <clears throat> having spent a lot of time in eastern Ukraine in 2014 with the OSCE special monitoring mission, including behind the front lines, <clears throat> I had seen firsthand the brutality of the Russian-backed thugs there and um, <clears throat> the way they would shell populated centers uh, indiscriminately. But <clears throat> I have to say that um, in a recent trip I took to Chernihiv where I saw um, the, what, what the Russian forces did, um, I've been to many violent places around the world, as I'm sure you have, uh, Gaza Strip, places like that. But nothing prepared me for that. I compared it to, I described the scene that I saw. It was a residential community pounded consistently by Russian bombs, and we're talking 250 to 500 pound bombs right in the middle of communities. It was a mix of a wildfire, a hurricane, and a war on top of that. You had, um, we actually saw teddy bears, dolls, toys in those bomb craters. That's how close they hit. Shredded teddy bears. Um, today, if I can give you a couple of vignettes, I'm in, as I said, in uh, Lviv, uh, right on the edge of the old town. Nearby me is what they call the garrison church. Not a day goes by except for maybe one or two days for Easter where a, a funeral doesn't take place. There are military funerals there every day. Today was one. Sometimes we have two. Sometimes we have three young men um, in the church at the same time. Their family is saying goodbye. I was there for one of them today. Uh, And just on the way to to my flat here to talk to you, I passed by a, I would say, middle-aged serviceman in full uniform. He was on our park bench, just bent over twice, bawling his eyes out. Um, It looked like he had just come from the front line.
2: Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com
15: squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
0: Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy.
2: Mikhail Khodorkovsky was once one of the richest men in Russia owning Yukos Oil Company. He was imprisoned by Vladimir Putin for 10 years before being released and now lives in exile in London, where he's committed to promoting democratic reform in Russia. In September, he joined us on stage in central London for an event that was very dramatic, not least of which because it was the same day that Queen Elizabeth II passed away with his co-author, Martin Sixsmith, who was former BBC Moscow correspondent and our host, Ridley Shah.
9: I do want to just go back to the time of Yeltsin for a moment. This is the 1990s, everything's changing. You made an awful lot of money under Yeltsin. Uh, I think they were, they were you became an oligarch, right? What we talk about as oligarchs, you bought these share vouchers from ordinary people. There was these loans that you gave at one point to, to Yeltsin to prop up his government. But when you look back on that, it, we're critical now, I think, of oligarchs. People speak of them very badly. But you were part of that system. How do you reconcile that in your mind?
10: когда. Yeah. Началась With the new, new economic, economic trends that they started in 1986, uh, very few people
16: actually decided, decided to go into business, were brave enough to go into business. Well, just think about it yourselves. On the one hand, there is this law about this new economy, new enterprises where you could actually go into private business. And at the same time, there is a criminal law where it says that if you actually work in business and are an entrepreneur, this is criminalized, it's a criminal offense, and you could actually end up being imprisoned for many years. Uh, For the first five years, my colleagues and I would go to work and actually greet ourselves. uh, Oh, you're still here, you're not in prison, until that actual uh, law was abolished. So there were few people who decided to go into business. Some of them, those who did go, uh, became very successful. And then comes 1991 when we are told, aha, everything you've made is going to be expropriated from you. So then obviously we just took, some took weapons, others took bricks and went to defend what we had made. And then came 1993 when again we were told that, no, you're going to give up everything you have earned. Again we took up arms or bricks and went to defend so if anyone here thinks that doing business under Yeltsin was just sort of reading, leafing through a book and nothing else, that wasn't the case at all. We had nothing like that, with what Putin's cronies have today, yachts, palaces. There was nothing like that then. So when people ask me, so what was my wealth at the time? What was it like? How do I imagine it? I can actually tell you straight away. We were actually developing the new oil field in western Siberia, the Priokskaya field. And in order to reach that oil field from the railway station, you had to cross 180 kilometers over marshes, over bogland. So we actually laid a road across the marshes. And just have this picture in your mind. So you're flying over it in a helicopter, and you have 180 kilometers worth of trucks, one after another, filled with sand and gravel. This is how I saw my wealth. This was my wealth. But when my business was taken away from me, in fact, I didn't need the money. I wasn't really interested in money itself. What was interesting for me is those trucks, those bridges, thousands of people, thousands
9: of huge machines working
16: there. That
17: was interesting.
9: You were daring, you were a risk taker. Martin, I'm going to bring you in here just briefly. It was a Wild West, though, that 90s period. In order to survive, you needed to be made of stern stuff. I'm going to put it politely.
18: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it was um, capitalism in red in tooth and claw. Mm. Um, uh, And I'm not sure the Russians really knew what capitalism was or what was going to happen. And in the West, the capitalist system has sort of developed a whole series of sort of Safeguards that people act within certain parameters. In Russia, there was none of that. You know, uh, business feuds were solved with a machine gun, um, uh, and nobody had any sort of sense of where everything was going. And because there were no safeguards, the whole thing went dreadfully wrong by the end of the 1990s. And um, Yeltsin was complicit in that as well because of the corruption in the Kremlin. And I think that gave democracy a a bad name or Western-style capitalist democracy a bad name. So when Putin came to power in 2000, he was on a pretty sort of easy wicket because he was going to turn things around, go back to the old tried and trusted system and make the trains run on time.
9: And the public was open to that. So to come to Putin then, you've made an awful lot of money. You've become the richest man in Russia. President Putin comes to power. You meet him. What did you think of him? How did you view him when you first met him? Putin Putin is a gangster, but he's a very talented gangster. So he'll
16: show you the face you wanted to see. So when he spoke to Bush Jr.,
9: he showed him a a Democrat, a pure Democrat. I think I've got the quote in front of him, uh, in front of me. He said, I looked the man in the eye. I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. I was able to get a sense of his soul.
1: In 2022, the spectre of nuclear weapons use has returned to centre stage in Europe. In September, Vladimir Putin broadcast an unprecedented and somewhat menacing speech to the world. His message was clear. Russia has nuclear weapons and they're not afraid to use them. This is not a bluff, he clarified. In early October on the Intelligence Web podcast, we brought together three experts to talk about the realities of Putin's nuclear threats and the deterrent value of NATO's nuclear shield. Our host for this conversation was Josh Glancy, the Times special correspondent. And Josh was joined by Marian Messmer, Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House, Andrew Buklitsky, Senior Researcher at the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, and William Albert, Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the Institute for Strategic Studies.
4: I I will caveat this discussion uh, very slightly by saying that this is obviously a fluid situation in both Ukraine and Russia. And tomorrow uh, could bring different news, worse news, uh, or better. But with that in mind, you know, people have told me uh, that Putin has been saying things in recent days, such as, I will do the Cuban Missile Crisis properly, which is a slightly ominous phrase. So I'd like to ask each of you in turn, perhaps we'll start with Marion, how worried are you right now?
19: The situation is definitely worrying. Um, I think the, the risk for nuclear conflict is higher if there is an ongoing war or crisis situation that involves a nuclear power. However, you mentioned in your introduction a few things around nuclear deterrence. And all of these ideas are predicated around the the idea that this conflict is taking place between two powers that both have nuclear weapons. And the important point for me uh, in the current situation is that Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons. So when we've heard the threats from Russia, they were always aimed at NATO. And so in my reading of the situation, they were actually aimed at ensuring that Russia essentially could continue the war in Ukraine as it wanted without risking NATO involvement. So I am worried. And what is happening in Ukraine is absolutely horrendous. But um, I don't think we need to be worried about nuclear war starting right this minute or anytime soon. I think at this point, nuclear threats are about you know keeping NATO at its arm's length rather than um, about actually... Being used in Ukraine,
4: and Andre, I, I was reading a, a piece about this in the Atlantic magazine yesterday, which made the assessment that we're as close to nuclear war now as we have been at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do, do you believe that to be an accurate assessment?
20: Mm. It's a great question. I wish I knew, because uh, as you said, nuclear war only happened once, 1945. Never happened since. So all of the percentages and calculations are, to a certain extent, an art, not a science. You can give, you can put any number there. Frankly, I don't like the direction in which this whole situation is going. I agree with Marian that it's not like we're going to have a nuclear war tomorrow. But there is this shift in the discussion because, again, as Marian said, previously we were mostly thinking about a nuclear war between nuclear powers. And because there is this mutual assured destruction thing, or at least each country could wreak a lot of havoc with other country, there was this feeling that there would be no nuclear war. Nuclear war cannot be won, should not be fought. And it's really hard to were role-playing some of those uh, scenarios, trying to get to nuclear war from a con- conventional conflict, and it just it's just hard to go there, even if there is a war, even if there, as you know, Uh, planes shut down. It's hard to to see how you move from from any of those events to then nuclear escalation. It just doesn't go there. However, now what we're starting to see and uh, President Putin in his uh, speech uh, announcing that these new regions would join Russia under four regions of Ukraine, he is specifically saying that Russia's territorial inte- integrity is something which would be protected by Russian nuclear weapon. And at the very moment when Russia annexed those territories, when it started calling those territories its own territories, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is ongoing in uh, Kherson region, in uh, Kharkiv region, now going into Luhansk and Donetsk, that would mean the Russian territorial integrity is threatened, is breached. And Putin was quite clear that he, he is considering uh, nuclear weapons as a response to that. And then we heard from people like Dmitry Medvedev, former president, now deputy head of Security Council, specifically discussing scenarios of, you know, nuclear war fighting in Ukraine. Again, as I said, it doesn't mean that Russia is going to use nuclear weapons. But uh, now, for the first time, we see a clear path to that nuclear use. Then, of course, you are getting all sorts of dilemmas. Which action would trigger this response? There is a continual Ukrainian assault, which city is important enough, and so on and so forth. But we're now in kind of a new situation, uh, I would say, uncharted territory. So probably I, I wouldn't say that we are closest to nuclear war, but there are just new pathways to it, which we're not really considering before.
8: In October 2022, three of Britain's most distinguished and best-selling historians, Peter Frankopan, Max Hastings and Margaret Macmillan, came to the Intelligence Squared stage in London to share their insights into the conflict. In this clip, we hear the historians discuss whether political players in global conflicts should be treated as rational actors.
21: Well, it helped that the Russian army was supremely incompetent, yeah. uh, badly led, they didn't understand basic logistics, uh, they hadn't realized when they'd done all these training exercises that they do with great show, often with partners from, from other countries, um, that, their, that their tanks had much lower mileages than they thought they did, and so you had this 70-mile queue because you couldn't get... Vehicles to the front. So, I mean, I think that's right. I think with, with Putin, the problem is, is not emotional acting. It's being a bad actor. And Putin, as all opportunists are, and as Hitler was and many other leaders in history, uh, is, a, is, a, is an opportunist. And you can see why he thought things would play out in a different way. He thought we were weak. Heath, well, it's, it starts with what was uh, absolutely right. I mean, it starts with Margaret, with the, all the intelligence reports from Ukraine, with that he'd be welcome with open arms. In fact, intelligence officer, Russian and FSB intelligence officers in Kiev had chosen the apartments that they'd move into after the great uh, conquest. He was absolutely certain that Ukraine's had no fighting spirit, let alone competence. But beyond that, he looked at Europe post pandemic, economically stressed. He could see the chaos of Brexit, which is almost incomprehensibly crap how we've been as a country in terms of the leadership, regardless of our political persuasions or whether you're pro-Brexit, I'm not here for that. But no one can argue that we have had strong and stable leadership in the last three or four years. And on top of that, we've had um, all the kinds of disagreements where we've, we've detached from the rest of the world to solve our own problems, that that's opportunity for a permanent member of the Security Council is a challenge. Uh, you could see Macron calling NATO brain dead as quite a clear signal. You could see the incompetence of the way that The United States ditched Britain and its partners to pull out of Afghanistan and the way in which that was done with U.S. Marines smashing keyboards to try and make them unusable and taking parts off very expensive pieces of kit. You you can see Poland and Hungary effectively either being or about to be sanctioned by the EU. And you'd probably take a view that you'd you'd face very little resistance, particularly if you can see what happened in 2014. So Putin gambled on all of that. And through a series because of, as Margaret said, an authoritarian structure that is extremely slim, there's no institutional protection anyway up the whole way up, you can see why he threw the dice and thought he was absolutely bound to win. And like most opportunist gamblers, you you can win often, but if you get it wrong, you get it really, really badly wrong.
22: I think one thing we don't um, sorry, Margaret. No, after you Uh, one thing we don't hear enough about and we don't say enough ourselves, we all owe an extraordinary debt of gratitude to the United States that without the Americans, um, nobody should kid themselves, uh, Ukraine would by now be toast. If Ukraine was dependent upon European assistance, military and economic, and although we talk a lot about this quantity of weapons, we've sent it, nothing compared with the Americans, and I think our leaders should be saying to Washington, should be expressing extraordinary gratitude to Washington, and should be making the Americans feel that we understand what we owe them. Because another president in the White House might have behaved completely differently. Mm. And, um, and, oh yes, and we, might, we may in 2024 have another president. We've got to start in Europe taking security seriously. We cannot rely on the Americans always bailing us out. And by gosh, they have bailed us out this time around.
23: No, I, I agree with you. And I think, what if Donald Trump had been president? What if, what if he had actually won the election? Yeah, you know, but he, he would have been congratulating Putin, his new best friend, and saying, what a great victory. Um, but just to go back to what Peter was saying about Russian assumptions, and, and Putin himself, I mean, there is a terrible thing that, you know, it, it's, it, all dictators should be warned about this. The longer you stay there, the more isolated you get, the more you'll only hear from people who are, flattering you to tell you what you want. I'm sure a lot of the intelligence failures were people telling him what he wanted to hear. I mean, if you're an FSB agent, if you you sent a note, a report back to Moscow, saying, by the way, a lot of Ukrainians actually probably will fight for the country, that would've been the end of your career. Mm. And so I think Putin had convinced himself, and there's also a really interesting element here. He thought the West was decadent, and have you noticed how often he talks about gender, and he talks about same-sex marriage, and he talks about transgender? You know, there's there's something really deeply weird but I think he he had convinced himself (laughs) that, no, I think the fact that he fixes on it um, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm not gonna get into Putin's psychology because that would be like getting into Hades. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think, I think there, there was that assumption. And again, it's, it's what people have in their minds when they do something. And I think he had certain things in his mind. It was gonna be easy, the West wouldn't do anything. And now that the West has responded, and now that Ukraine has responded so effectively uh, and shown such military prowess, he's stuck. What does
1: he do now? Now, we've heard plenty of analysis of Russian leader Vladimir Putin in this episode, but what about Ukrainian leader Vladimir Zelensky? How did Zelensky, once an actor who played the president on television, come to be one of the most significant wartime leaders of the 21st century? In December 2022, Olga Unuk, Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Manchester, and Henry Hale, Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University, came to Intelligence Squared to discuss Zelensky's life, career, and popularity. Our host for this conversation was Carl Miller, Research Director at the think tank Demos.
24: All right, well, Zelensky's moment seems to be drawing near. So we have this kind of generation of kind of compromised oligarchic political leaders. We have Zelensky's burgeoning media empire as he's using kind of biting satire to plug into kind of uh, public disappointment, dissidence, and cynicism. Um, Olga, take us from Servant of the People through to his presidential campaign. How did he finally then, after so many years of actually wanting nothing to do with politics, how did he finally step in and run?
25: I don't know if I'm convinced that he wanted nothing to do with politics. I mean, as Henry already said, being uh, the general producer of Inter makes you quite involved in politics in some way. But, you know, everything that Henry just said, what happens in 2015 is that Ukraine sees yet another major, major spike of poverty. So poverty rates go through the roof in Ukraine. This is also one year into the Donbass war with Russia. There's instability in the country. And we're back for some people, um, for some ordinary citizens. We are back to the place where some people found themselves in the 1990s, not being able to afford to buy meat for dinner. That's actually something that Zelensky talked about as a childhood memory and his father promising that his friends would have always the ability to eat meat at their home. These are the kind of questions that ordinary Ukrainians were going through. whilst also uh, engaged in a war and yet again, again, with having the sense of disappointment for some following a revolutionary moment. And all of these things are captured in this show, Servant of the People, where Zelensky stars as uh, Vasil Holuborodka, who uh, is a history teacher turned unexpectedly president. Um, after his students submit a video that goes viral, and, and ordinary citizens provide uh, money for, for this character to become, to be able to pay the amount to become a candidate for president. And the whole entire series of Servant of the People is actually just this real story of ordinary Ukrainians' lives. The fact that ordinary Ukrainians have to pay bribes to get basic things done, that they have to take out credits to buy very simple uh, items for the home, like a microwave, that uh, the the oligarchs are controlling political power. All of this is displayed uh, very, uh, in times, very humorously and not always my sense of humor, but nonetheless, a little slapstick comedy in those first two seasons. Very clearly. So most ordinary citizens watching that servant of the people will have recognized that this is art imitating life. This is the experience of ordinary citizens. But then there comes that third season. Zelensky, there's a lot of rumors whether or not Zelensky will run for president in, in those few years, right? And there's the the, the rumor mill was spinning and spinning. Uh, he announces, of course, his presidency in a New Year's Eve address, um, where he is, goes from uh, playing a child in a snowsuit to now Vladimir Zelensky, which is the last time I think he calls himself that publicly, uh, which is the, the Russian way of saying his name, and then goes on to announce his uh, candidacy for president. Then comes the third season of Servant of the People. And the only way to understand that third season is as part of, of Zelensky's campaign, quite frankly. This this is very much the substance of his campaign. It is running during the electoral campaign, so immediately following that January 1st announcement. Uh, and it is about a country at war. It is about a country divided. It is about... A country that is divided uh, along various different lines, that he then shows are not the things that are important to ordinary citizens and to, or to the to Ukrainians, right? And the whole season is about him piecing the country back together and through whatever means he can, uh, ending in a very beautiful uh, few scenes uh, where. Uh, Donetsk-based miners come to the rescue, uh, the eastern Donetsk-based miners come to the rescue of the western Lviv miners who are stuck underground. Uh, and in the very end, in order to pay off Ukraine's mounting IMF debt, uh, uh, Vesil Borodko makes this beautiful speech on how we need to do this ourselves. And overnight, ordinary citizens of Ukraine in the show collect all of their wealth, belongings, watches, jewelry, money, and place it on the independent square, the Maidan, the location where all these mass mobilizations happened before. We call this in the book a virtual incumbency because the reality is that whilst political science thinks that incumbents have uh, this benefit of of they're just because they're there, just because they're present and doing their job and people see them doing their job, they have this incumbency advantage. Whereas Zelensky, he was playing a fictional president on television, but he was in fact doing his job and he perhaps was seen on television by more ordinary Ukrainians than the actual president was seen on television doing his job. And so we think he benefited from this uh, very real uh, virtual incumbency effect in those few months of the last season of Servant of the People.
24: Thank you, Olga. And of course, that propels him into the presidency itself. Now, I'm going to um, take some questions from the audience, because I think they they are going to be able to carry us through to the to the, to the end of the chronology and, and to the present day. Everyone, thank you for your questions so far. Please do type them in uh, as we go now over the kind of second half of our discussion. But I'm gonna to go to Raoul first uh, and, and Henry to you. Um, was Zelensky popular before the, the war? So um, what was the early uh, pre-invasion part of his presidency like? And, and actually I'll add to that, what, what, what did he come in seeking to do? What, what was his agenda?
15: Well, his popularity had uh, ups and downs, um, but uh, certainly as a performer before he became president, he was tremendously popular. And this is what led to many people actually trying to recruit him into politics, which happened at least a couple of times we documented in the book prior to his actual decision to run at the end of 2018 for the presidency in 2019. And uh, when he won, his victory was the largest in. Uh, Ukrainian history. I mean, he just trounced the the incumbent president, Petro Poroshenko. And so this was the largest margin of victory uh, in Ukrainian history. So he was well over two thirds approval ratings for the first part of his presidency. But uh, one of the problems that he faced was that just uh, several months into his presidency, less than a year, you had the uh, onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, which started to take its toll over time. And of course, you had the ongoing war with Russia. So his popularity began to dip and it dipped down to maybe about uh, a third of the population approving of uh, of his performance, depending on which polls you look. So that was the basically the floor for him, and that was right before the February 24th all-out insu- assault by the Russians. What we do know to the book, though, is that still this was higher, his floor was higher than uh, pretty much had been the case for any of his predecessors. Uh, the norm in Ukraine had been to come to power on an election, and then the glow would fade, and uh, then they wouldn't even be reelected if you actually had a free election. But in Zelensky's case, he was actually faring better. But then, of course, once the war came, his rating shot back through the roof. So he went through approval ratings of, you know, 30, 35 percent, all the way up to, by some polls, 90 percent uh, approval ratings. And one thing we do talk about in the book, I'll just mention, is that. Uh, you know, we argue that that ninety percent has to be interpreted with at least a little grain of salt, and and we think what that reflects is primarily just massive agreement that we need to back Zelensky now uh, among uh, Ukrainians, right? Ag- agreeing that they need to back Zelensky now to fight off the Russian uh, massive uh, aggression, uh, but that doesn't mean that they don't harbor doubts underneath, and it and, and some people will say. Uh, openly that, okay, well, we support him now, but uh, we're a democracy and we have a lot of things that we're going to need to discuss after the election. And so we estimate that um, a little over a quarter of the population feels that way. So out of that 90% ballpark, um, about uh, you know, 25, 30% have these reservations, uh, but that still leaves three-fifths of the population that really fully and wholeheartedly support him now.
8: Although this is the war that has received the most attention in Russia's recent history, this is far from Putin's only war. In January 2023, we were joined by political scientist and Russia expert Mark Galliotti and foreign correspondent Katie Stallard to discuss how Vladimir Putin and his conflicts have shaped Russia in the 21st century.
11: You include a quote from Putin's inauguration speech on May 7th, 2000, when he says, we must not forget anything. We need to know our history and always remember those who created the Russian state defending its dignity made it a great, powerful, mighty state. How important has this idea of defending Russia's dignity been during Putin's first two decades in power?
17: I think it's absolutely central, and I think this is one of the the many tragedies of Western policymaking towards Russia, in that actually Putin has been telling us what he's about from the very beginning, and we reinterpreted, we ignored, or whatever. The thing is, look, for someone like Putin, Russia is a great power, full stop, and it's not a great power because it has nuclear weapons, or because it stretches across 11 time zones, or whatever else, it's a great power because it's Russia. That is its birthright. And it's a birthright that has been demonstrated through how, as far as he's concerned, Russia has in effect saved civilization, sometimes from itself, time and time again. You know, Russia broke Napoleon. Russia broke Hitler. One can question all these assessments, or certainly the kind of how, how they're framed. But nonetheless, you know, that, that's what he believes. And so as a result, he feels that Russia has this kind of historic status claim to being a great power, one that the West ignored, one that the West tried to deny. And so it comes to this point that I think Putin himself genuinely believes, even now with his ghastly invasion of Ukraine, genuinely believes that he is on the defensive, that he is trying to protect Russia and its interests from others who would basically deny it that which is its birthright. Whether it's Chechens wanting to break away, whether it's the Georgians not understanding that they're part of Russia's sphere of influence, and then indeed later on the Ukrainians, or whether it's just a West that is malign in its perspectives of of Russia. So yes, this this is absolutely central. It's bringing together the emotions of a man who, as I said, has not really got used to the notion of the end of empire, with a wider sense that Russia has some kind of manifest historic destiny that must not cannot be denied.
1: Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Intelligence Square podcast. Do stay with us as we continue to bring you more insightful and expert voices on this ongoing conflict. On Sunday's episode of the podcast, we'll be asking, should the West send fighter jets to Ukraine? And on March 23rd, Intelligence Squared and the South Bank Center will bring together leading experts to debate and discuss the possible paths to peace in Ukraine and the likelihood of each being achieved. To find out more, please head to IntelligenceSquared.com. You've been listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Catherine Hughes. Thanks for joining us.